All right. Now that was fun. Singing praises to God, I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. I mean, even doing it down here, underneath the coconut trees and the palm trees, out with the ocean right in front of us. <sighs> sure beats standing in a church building in a basement or something like that doing this. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. In the snow. In the snow, yes. There's nothing wrong with snow. Today, this was pretty good. This was like 85 degrees today. This was, this was all right. This was a nice day. But tonight, what we're going to be talking about is something absolutely amazing. This is just a fantastic lesson that we have planned for you tonight, that God has put upon my heart to share with you. I mean, we're down here for Easter and stuff like this. Yesterday, we talked about the resurrection. I showed you evidence that the resurrection really took place. And just using logic and just history and stuff like that, I've uh, made a pretty good case, I thought on trying to show you that the evidence is overwhelming that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. Now, focusing on this, and because it's the Easter season and stuff, I really felt God compelling me to do a lesson on who is Jesus. And this is uh, what you call the, the subject here is called Christology. Not Christology, that's something totally different. This is Christology, the study of Christ. And it's a theological topic. But I want you to understand who it is that we sing to, who it is that we call Lord. Who is this Jesus specifically? I mean, as we talked about yesterday on Easter, yes, he was a historical figure. He actually did live. But he is not just the average Joe. He is not just a historical figure. And a lot of people today, there's a lot of uh, weird ideas and different strange theologies and stuff that talk about who Jesus is. We're going to take a look tonight and go right to the source. One of the best sources you will ever find. If you ever do a research paper on who Jesus is, we're going to take a look tonight at the best description you will ever come across. It's just like three sentences, but the best description you will ever, ever find on who Jesus is. And that's what we're going to cover tonight. And in doing so, I'm just asking that God will glorify himself through this thing, because as we do this, and we explore what Scripture actually says. Now, remember, one of the earlier lessons we had, we can trust Scripture. It is reliable. It has not been altered. It is reliable. It is trustworthy. And so what does Scripture, the Word of God, what God said was never going to change, what does He say about who Christ is? And that's what we're going to look at tonight. There's about eight things in this passage we're going to be doing in the book of Hebrews. The writer of the book of Hebrews, whoever it was, we don't know if it was Paul or Apollos or Gaius or whoever. It doesn't matter. God knows who wrote the book. But what's in the book is phenomenal. The book of Hebrews is one of my favorite books in the New Testament because I, I love I love to personally, honestly, I love the Old Testament too because of all the archaeology and history, but not just that. I love how the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, I like to use the word covenant instead of testament because that's what it was. It was an agreement. The Old Covenant, how it was set up and what it is, the Old Covenant points directly to the Messiah, the Meshach, the, the, the Christ. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the things from the Old Covenant. And the book of Hebrews, better than any other book you're ever going to come across, explains this, how Christ, how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. 
It's a great book. It's only a few chapters long. Wouldn't take you very long to read it. But wow, what's in there? And I'll tell you, the first couple of just uh, the first four verses is mind blowing of what is all contained in here. And that's what we're going to explore tonight. So as we go through this, I'm going to ask that you focus on what these first four verses of this book say about who the Messiah is and the different characteristics that we have here as we study who this Jesus really is. And I'll tell you, if you catch this, it changes your life because he's just not an ordinary person. So let's open in prayer. We'll get started. Father God, we come before you and we just ask that you would just bless our time. As Lord, we explore your word and what you say who Jesus is. I pray, dear God, that we would hold you in great esteem. Lord, I pray that you would just glorify yourself. We just sing praises to you. Lord, let that not just fade away. Let this just really get deep dwelling inside of our hearts like a spring of living water coming out that we understand and comprehend who Jesus is. Dear God, teach us. Teach your children who Jesus is. As we go through this in Jesus' name, amen. So starting in Hebrews chapter 1, reading the first four verses from the English Standard Version, which I have already told you now, it's a word-for-word translation. So it's going to be, by each individual word, we're going back to the original language. So here we go. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." There are eight major things that we're going to see is being described here as the Holy Spirit, whoever this writer is, is inspiring and telling them what to write about Christ. Remember, this is not a man-made book. Some person, only God knows who, was inspired by the Holy Spirit being told what to put on parchment, and he did. And this was spread all over the Christian world so that people would understand how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, how he is the Messiah, that they were, the Jews were expecting, and what he has done. This is phenomenal stuff. So starting in the first one, number one, the Son of God. The Son of God. As it says, in these last days he spoke to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heirs of all things. The Messiah would be the Son of God. And it comes straight from prophecy spoken by King David. In the Old Covenant, David, under the influence of the Holy Spirit in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, writes this. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, this is a prophecy pertaining directly to the Messiah. Psalm chapter 2 has four basic messianic messages in it. And one of the key things in here that the Jews would study is that the Messiah would be the son of God how important this is. Now, the Hebrew word used here for where it says the son, I'm talking back in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, you are my son. The word son here is the word ben. Ben 
is the Hebrew word for, uh, for a son. It's the common word for a person's legal biological descendant. Have you ever seen the movie Ben-Hur? Okay, in the movie, if you're, or if you've read the book, the guy's name was Judah. Judah Ben-Hur. Judah, son of Hur. That's what that actually means. Ben-Hur, Ben, son of Hur. And that's the character in that fictional book. But that's how the word Ben was used. The Jews were taught now, and all Jews were taught this in synagogues and stuff, that the Messiah would come from God, the Father, directly from him to the people. That's what they were taught, directly from him. And the writer of the book of Hebrews here, where we say in these last days he spoke to us by his son. Now, this is a Greek word because it's New Testament. And the Greek word here is huios, and which is, it's for one, it's a masculine word. And it means one produced by a, a father, like biologically. But God, the father, is spirit. In John chapter 4, when Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, he specifically says, the Father is spirit. God is spirit and has no physical body. The Father is a spirit. He has no physical body as the Son does. You see, because of this, God cannot have a wife because he is spirit. He can't have a wife in the human means. Though some people throughout time, and today it's becoming more and more popular, that God had a wife whose name was Ishtar, one of the idols worshipped in Canaan. No, that is not true. God is spirit, as Jesus said. Well, if he's spirit and can't have a wife, how did he have a son? It's a little confusing for us because we think in this culture, a father biologically making a son. But you got to think, remember, this is written to Jews. The way the Jews viewed things and the way that their culture was set up means he is the same essence as the father. The same essence. Jesus is the same essence as the father. The same spirit as the father. And he came into being... And as he came into being, he came from that essence. Now, one thing I used to, I remember teaching this to summer staff many years ago, and some people really struggled with this. I don't understand coming from the same essence. What does that mean? So what I did, I should have brought it here. I took a, a lob of clay, just ordinary modeling clay. And I said, now we're going to do something. Um, I'm not calling this God, but we're going to have this symbolize God. We're not going to fall down and worship this. But I had a ball of clay. And then I pinched off a piece of clay. And I said, see, this is coming off of this. This is like the son coming from the father. It's the same essence. I pulled off a piece. Is not this the made of the exact same stuff as this? And they said, yeah. I said, that's how Jesus is. He is from the father. He's made of the exact same stuff. He is of the essence of the father. Now, to Jews, they understood this. They, they would be able to comprehend this. We have a, more of a struggle doing this. But um, he was viewed by the Jews as being, because it's coming from the essence of, coming from that as being then a son of, as he's coming from that essence. That's why he's called the son of God. Um, it's sort of, in a way, we can look at it in our culture like that. Like a dad producing uh, a child, what happens, uh, in my case, I didn't know how to make a boy. All I know how to make is girls. But what happens is, like, for instance, with Michaela over here, who is my daughter, she has part of me in her. She has half her DNA comes from me. The other half is from Denise. 
So in a way, her, she has come from the essence of me and the other essence from her mom. You understand that? So that's what this is looking at, but not speaking biologically like we're talking about a science lesson here that God actually had a wife and produces. No, no, no. God is a spirit. It doesn't work like that. But he is the essence of what he is made of is the same thing. In this case, there is no other partner in this. No other partner. God having the essence come from him is the son of God. That's just the way it was viewed. Also, you must understand this. Jesus is eternal. There was never a time he did not exist. Scripture is extremely clear on this. Not just here in this book, but you go to Colossians, you go to uh, the book of John, you keep seeing this over and over and over in Scripture. Jesus makes it very clear. In John chapter 8, verses 58, or 56 through 58, Jesus is teaching and talking to the Pharisees and stuff, and he says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, huh, you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. <laughs> right. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, by the way, that truly, truly in the Hebrew is the word amen, where we get the word amen. 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 That means a double emphasis. This is so important. Amen. Amen. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Ego ami in Greek. That is the same name that God uses at Mount Sinai with Moses. Jesus is the eternal God. And notice, when people say Jesus never claimed to be God, notice what the Jewish leaders did here. They pick up stones to stone him. Why? Because Jesus identified himself as I am. Eight times he has an encounter with these people, these Pharisees and stuff, in the book of John, where he says, ego ami, I am. And that irritated them because they knew exactly what he was claiming. He was claiming to be God. And this is the copulative verb, to be. I am, to be. Uh, this is the word from which we get the name of God as Yehovah, or a lot of people just call it Yahweh. I can tell you it's not pronounced Yahweh. Really, we're not sure how it's pronounced because, remember, ancient Hebrew had no vowels. We don't know. We think it was just breath sounds. Later on, they translate uh, Yehovah, or Yahweh, into the name Jehovah. What they did is they took Yehovah and they added the name Adonai later on. This is hundreds, uh, over a century after the uh, New Testament. Um, and it was a German, I believe, who did this. He took the letters, because then they added vowels to Hebrew, and he took the letters, a guy took the letters from Adonai and put it into Yehovah, and you get Yehovah, Yehovah, Jehovah. We pronounce a J, it was a Y sound, Yehovah. And that's how actually we get the name Jehovah. Uh, Jesus is proclaiming very strongly that he is God. That's the point we're making here. He is totally the God of who? The God of the Old Testament. He's talking about Abraham. The God of the Old Testament, Jesus, is him. And look at the next verse. Like I say, you see how the Jewish res leaders responded in 859 of John? So they picked up stones to throw at him. Why? Because he was blaspheming. He, to them, they, they saw him as claiming to be God. And they were going to kill him. Jesus claimed to be God quite a few times, but he is the eternal God. Don't lose sight of that. He is Yehovah. He is Yehovah. He is Elohim. He is El Shaddai. He is Adonai. All these names of God apply not just to the Father, they apply to Jesus 
just as well. Because he's of the same essence and came from the Father, he is God. He is the eternal God. And the, G the Jews knew that the Messiah, from Psalm chapter 2, the Messiah would be, coming from the essence of God, he would be the Son of God. And he was in existence before the creation of the world and continues into eternity. A little bit more of that later on. But what does the title, the Son of God, actually mean? Well, we can see this in John 1.14. I already said this verse the, uh, earlier in the lesson. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son of God, the Father, full of grace and truth. But it says, the only Son from the Father. In John 3.16, that wonderful passage, that wonderful verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The word only son in English is two words, but in the Greek, it's one word, monogenes. Monogenes, it's a compound word, mono and genes. Now the word monos, let's take a look at that one first. The trouble with the word monogenes, the trouble with the word monogenes is it doesn't have a single English equivalent. You just can't go to the dictionary and try and find a, an English word that describes it perfectly. It, it's just not there. So what we have to do, since it's a compound word, we break it into two parts. The word manos means mono, one, soul, alone, unique, single. And we hear it in modern language quite frequently. Monogamy, married to one person. Monologue. If you do dramas and stuff, you have a monologue. You're the only person on the stage speaking. One person. Um, if you are on a monorail, like a rail car or a car thing, a train or something that works on just one rail, a monorail. So we use this thing frequently. Monotheism, the worship of one God. That's what mono means. That's pretty easy for you to gather because we use that sometimes in our English language. The second word here is the word genes. Genes is actually from the Greek word ginomai which is really difficult to try and put into English. It's a verb, and it means to actually exist, or to a be a being, a kind of, a class of, or a type of. Sort of hard to translate. But this means, if you put the two words together, that Jesus is the sole or only type of God. There's a, not other ones. It does not imply that Jesus is inferior to God, but he is actually the same thing as God. He's of the same essence. Since God is deity, Jesus is total, complete deity. He's not a half a God. He's a full essence of God. He is the exact same. I love how one Greek expert put it in one of my books I was studying on this. He said this, Jesus is made of the same stuff as God. I thought that was pretty easy to understand. Jesus is made of the same stuff of God, same essence. I think that's about the best explanation I've ever heard for it. I mean, it's extremely simple, and that's what it is. Point two that the writer of Hebrews gets into is Jesus is the heir of all things. It says in 1-2, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Again, let's look back at Psalm chapter 2. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This is talking about the Messiah. The Messiah will have the earth as a possession. In other words, the writer is telling us everything that exists in creation 
ultimately becomes under the control of Jesus. He created it. It is for him. The Messiah will indeed become the heir of both the Old and New Testament writings. He becomes the heir of everything. We see this in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Look in the Old Testament, as we said, 2.8. Ask of me, I will make the nations. This is speaking about the Messiah. I will speak the na make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Everything that exists is going to be yours. You go to Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Or I love this one, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. This is a great verse. He is the image of the invisible God, speaking of Christ, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now I will say this too. This is a verse that has many times been taken out of context because it says, wait, you know, hold on. Jesus is the firstborn? You just said, Michael, he was eternal, that he's the same as God. Here it says he's firstborn. So how can this be? Do you have a contradiction in your Bible? Or was Jesus actually a period of time he did not exist until he was born? What does this mean? Whenever you come across something like this, it seems to be a contradiction or something that's really puzzling, go back to the original languages and see what the words are. So as we do this, yes, this appears just in the English translation that this is meaning that Jesus was created. And there are cults that actually teach this, that Jesus was a created being. And false religions do this frequently. They, they demean Jesus quite a bit. But that's not what this is. Here's the answer. If you go back to the original language and you see for that word firstborn in Colossians 1.15, the word firstborn, okay, it's the word prototokos. Prototokos. It's not a word called protogenesis. Okay, what's the difference here? What's going on? Well, protogenesis, this is not the word, but protogenesis is what these many people mistakenly throw in here. Protogenesis is the word for basically giving a physical birth, such as when you were born. Proto means first. Genesis means the origin or the beginning of. So protogenesis is a term to describe when someone is giving birth for the first time. That is not the word in Colossians. Instead, it's the word prototokos. That word is different. It, we have proto, so it's the first, but what does tokos mean? It comes from a Greek word, uh, tikto, which means dealing with birthrights, inheritance. The inheritance, the birthright of the firstborn. Thus, it says back up in Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God and has the birthright of creation. That's what that is actually saying. In both Jewish and Greek cultures, the firstborn was the ranking son who received the largest part of the inheritance of an estate from his father when his father died. It didn't necessarily have to be the firstborn. It was the one that the father chose to give the birthright to. And there are examples many times, even in the Old Testament, of people who are not the firstborn still getting the birthright. Jacob and Esau is a great example of that. Esau was born first, but Jacob got the birthright. So it's not necessarily the first one. It's the one, though, who receives the highest rank. That's what this is talking about. He is the image of the invisible God, the one of the highest rank for inheritance of all creation. That's what that is saying. So 1 Corinthians 1.15, Christ is given the highest rank over all of creation, is what this actually means in the Greek. It's not meaning that he's the first one born in creation. No. Instead, he's the one who gets the inheritance. 
Thus, Jesus is the firstborn in the sense that he will inherit creation. Number three. In Hebrews 1, 2, it says he created the world. He created the world. This is a remarkable statement. Do you realize what's going on here? How many times have you really thought, who's the creator God? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Many people I have found by doing surveys have always thought that the Father God was the creator God. That is not scriptural. In many places in scripture, it specifically says that Jesus is the creator. This is one of them. And right here in Hebrews 1, 2, he created the world. Jesus. John 1, 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Again, we see Jesus being the creator. In John 1.10, we see it again. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Or look how Paul writes it when he's under the influence of the Holy Spirit to the Colossian church. I love this. This is so cool. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible because it's a science verse. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Isn't that cool? Invisible things, invisible matter. The Bible even talks about invisible matter, which we now today know molecules, atoms, things like that. Wow. You got it right here in the Bible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Again, going back to the inheritance. Simply put, folks, it's really easy. Jesus is the creator God. He made all things, and without him, nothing was made. He did it all. Jesus is the creator God. Number four, it says he is the radiance of the glory of God. Glory. God radiates glory. Do you remember reading in the Old Testament when Moses went up on the mountain, spending time with God, he came down and he glowed? He actually did. His skin glowed. Why? Because he came in the presence of God. God has this, this type of glory that obviously can rub off. People have often asked me in the creation account, wait a minute, it says that there was light, and then afterwards God creates the sun. But God created light first, and then there's the sun. Yes. And then people say, well, wait a minute, how can you have plants if you don't have the sun yet? It's very simple. God gives off light. What kind of light is it? We have no idea. But it must be powerful because even Moses can absorb it. God gives off glory, gives off light. And we see this in Scripture. Um, as I was talking about, Exodus chapter 34, verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, and isn't it interesting? Moses was the first one to use a tablet that he got on a cloud. Zoom right over. <laughs> He came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And when they made the tabernacle and later on the temple, God's glory fills this and it's so bright. Look at this. In Exodus chapter 40, verse 38, when they're, when they're dedicating the tabernacle, it says, For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day and fire was by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout their journey. Light is just emanating from this building. 
And in Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, Now the cherubim were seated on the south side of the temple, the house, and the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherubim to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with a cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of God. Now this light and this radiance in God's glory is called something. It's called Shekinah. Shekinah glory. We don't know what this is because we don't get to see this very often. I've never seen it. Shekinah glory, I know it exists because it's described in the Bible on numerous occasions. It literally means this visible radiance that is a sign of God's presence. And the thing is, Jesus has this too. Do you remember when Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John? And it says all of a sudden they were standing there and Jesus started to glow. His clothing glowed, his face glowed and everything. A big cloud comes down and he was so bright and everything. Jesus was shedding his, his human aspect and letting his three disciples see something very special. The Shekinah glory of God. And it terrified these three people. They were scared to death. I don't know what your opinion is of Jesus, that if Jesus came walking down the road here, um, or underneath the coconut trees or something came over here, many people might think, oh, if I could just see Jesus, I'm going to run up and give him a hug. I don't think so. Because every time God makes a presence, Jesus makes a present with his Shekinah glory, it scares people witless. I mean, we are, it's terrifying. These three disciples see this and they fall down and start to worship. I mean, this is scary to them. But Jesus glows with the Shekinah glory, even there. That's in Matthew 17, 2 through 9, Mark 9, 2 through 10, Luke 9, 29 through 36. You have three gospels telling you about how Jesus showed Shekinah glory, which is something that only God does. God actually radiates glory. Jesus does too. Number five. In Hebrews 1.3, it says, and the exact imprint, imprint of his nature. What in the world does that mean? Well, it's sometimes translated in other translations, the expressed image. Um, actually, the word that you find here in the Greek, it's the only time it's ever used in the Bible. So we don't get a lot of meaning from this um, that we can check with other things. So you've got to go back to the original just uh, literal language of the Greek to try and figure this out to get an idea of what's being said. Where it says the exact imprint is the translation of the Greek word character. Now you might see out of character, the word we get character. It's the same word. The character. One can easily see the modern translation of character from this word, from this Greek word. And what it means is an engraving. It was used, that word, character, was used as an engraving on something or making an imprint. As I checked into this, the most common use of this word was having to do with making coins in the ancient world. They made coins out of copper, they made coins out of brass, they made coins out of silver, they made coins out of gold. What they would do is they would have um, melt down the, the metal and into little discs. They'd pop the discs out. They're just plain discs, nothing on either side. Then they had a stamp. They would take the stamp, which had the imprint on it, put it on top of the coin and whack it. Then they take another one and whack it. They take another one and whack it. The thing is, you have the exact imprint on every single coin because it's made from the same thing. That is what is being described here. Simply put, it means Jesus is the exact copy of the original. And the original is God the Father. 
He is the perfect impression, if you will, or the perfect imprint of the exact nature and essence of God. That's what that is actually saying. It does not refer to physical likeness, because remember, God is a spirit. But it does mean that in every conceivable way, Christ is the exact representation of the Father. Jesus is the exact imprint. And we see this illustrated so well in Scripture at the Last Supper. When they're sitting around and Philip is sitting there at the table and he asks Jesus a question. Looking at John chapter 14, verses 6 through 11. It's amazing in this passage. The disciples have spent three years with Jesus and they still haven't caught all this stuff. This is the story as they're sitting there. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is Jesus telling his disciples, and have seen him. Poor Philip. Poor Philip. Voices this. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. In other words, show us the Father. We'll be satisfied. Just show us the Father. Look what Jesus says to him, starting verse 9 now. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. But Jesus is saying right here, he is the exact imprint of the Father, the character. He said it plainly. He was the incarnate God, the incarnate God. Now, that's a word that you don't find in the Bible, the word incarnate. Actually, it comes from a Latin word, um, incarno, and that's the word that means flesh. Um, You ever eat chili? You ever have chili con carne? Carno, incarno, con carne. What's chili con carne? Chili with meat. It has the flesh in it. You ever go to a place called a carnival? See, it's from the same word, incarno, a carnival. Um, It's like, let the pleasures of the world and the flesh (laughs) indulge you for a while. That's what it it actually means. Um, So that's what that's talking about. So what he's actually saying, Jesus is indeed God in the flesh, is what's going on. He is totally God, but he's also totally man. Number six, it says he upholds the universe by the power of his word. Power. Jesus sustains the universe and everything that's in it. It is all under his control. This is one of the most powerful descriptions and acknowledgments that Jesus is divine, that he is God because he sustains the world through his power. It's a fascinating and a puzzling thing to scientists and physicists today, trying to figure out what holds matter and everything and and energy together. How does it work? Well, in Colossians, Paul tells us who's the sustainer. Colossians 1.17. And he, speaking of Jesus, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. God is producing power, which actually is keeping everything in order. Number seven, it says that he makes the purification for sins. In the Old Testament, it was the high priest 
who would perform the offerings and stuff and the sacrifices for sin using blood. Blood was necessary for the forgiveness of sin. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the only way to remove your sin is through blood. In the book of Leviticus, which is part of the Torah, the law of the Jews in the old covenant says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood that makes atonement for life. Blood is necessary. And then the writer of Hebrews in chapter 9:22 says what? Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without, get this folks, this is so important, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. You cannot get rid of your sin by doing any type of good work. God tells us in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the New Testament, blood is necessary for the forgiveness of sin. Christ sacrificed on Good Friday. He became the Lamb of God. He sacrificed his blood to cover our sins, the Lamb of God. And he offered his blood to take away the sins of the world. The writer of Hebrews again talks about this in chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls, like in the old covenant, and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of heifer, sanctified the purification of flesh. If that worked in the Old Testament, just think, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God. If the old system of taking animal blood can do it, can you imagine what the blood of God would do for taking away our sin? Or John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus, his blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. You know what's fascinating, folks? You cannot out-sin God's grace. You cannot out-sin God's grace. His blood covers all unrighteousness. I'm going to tell you a story. I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to tell a story. You like stories. This was on a marine biology trip a number of years ago here on Grassy Key. I had curfew one night and I went around to the rooms to make sure everybody is in the rooms doing the bed checks and stuff. And I got to the last room. There were four girls in this room and I saw they were all in there and I said, okay, good night. See you guys tomorrow. Lock your door, whatever. They slide, uh, slid the opening door because they had a patio door. They closed it. I started walking down to the beach to go sit down at the beach for about an hour to watch for the curfew and make sure everybody's safe and everything's taken care of. As I turn and I start walking away from the room, I hear the door open. I turn around and like, what's going on? Why is somebody coming out? Who's got a death wish? And <laughs> this girl comes up to me and she says, Michael, can we talk? And I, um, I said, do you need something or something short? I actually thought, do they need towels or toilet paper? What's going on? And she says, no, can we talk? I need to talk to you about something. I said, sure. So we walked down to the beach and we sat right underneath on this dock underneath the lights. And, and I said, what's up? And she says, she was from Milwaukee. And she said this. She said, on Easter Sunday, you said something that we cannot out God's grace, that God can forgive us of all of our sins. I said, that's right. And she says, is there any place in the Bible that actually says that? I said, well, there's 1 John 1, 7 and 1 John 1, 9. The verse we have right here, the blood of Jesus Christ covers all unrighteousness. And she started to cry. I was sensing something is wrong here. I said to her, Melissa, what's going on? Why are you crying? What's happening here? What's going on? She says, 
is this really in the Bible? I said, do you have a Bible? She says, I have a big one at home. Our family has a big one on a stand, but we never read it. As I told you guys, I bring Bibles down. I said, let's go to the library, get a Bible. We walk in there, I pull out a, a Bible, unwrap the wrapping, we go down, we sit back underneath the light on the dock, and I open up the first John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. She read this in her Bible, I had to help her find it, but she opened this, she read that over and over, and she just started bawling. And I said, Melissa, what's, what's going on? What, what's happening? Tell me what you're thinking or whatever. This is what she said. I will never forget this because this broke my heart. The church I go to back home, my pastor said, I had done too many of the bad sins and there's no way I could ever be forgiven. God could never forgive me and there was no way I'd ever get in heaven. I said, your pastor said that? She says, yes. I said, what does God say? She says, that's what I'm, I'm crying about. She says, this is God promising. That. I said, that is exactly it. God is making a promise. God, there are, do you know there's certain things God can't do? God can't lie. God can't break his promise. And right there, she accepted Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. And I told her, you better get to a different church because your pastor is totally wrong. I said, forget what your pastor says. What does God say? The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all. It doesn't say certain sins. It doesn't say 10 sins or 50 sins or only sins against one person. It says all unrighteousness. If you have struggled with this in your life yourself, find that verse, underline it, circle it, memorize it. That is a promise from God. Eighth, and this is the last and we're done. Jesus is at the right hand of majesty. That's the last thing in this verse that's talking, that we're going to cover here tonight. And some people have this incorrect view now that Jesus, when he went back up into heaven, went and sat on a throne someplace around where God the Father is sitting, that he's off on a side throne. No, that is not correct. And we see even in the book of Revelation, that is not where Jesus is. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of majesty. He is on the exact throne that the Father occupies also because he is of the same essence. He is totally God. He is at the right hand, not on a different chair, not on a different throne. He's sitting at the right hand of majesty. That's where he is at. So do you know Jesus? Do you understand who Jesus is? I mean, we almost... I almost feel like we should sing some more songs and just praise him because, I mean, he's worthy of the glory. Jesus is God, and his blood can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when God cleanses you, when you become a born-again person, or actually, if you really want to be technical in the Greek, the word is not born again, it's born of above. But when you become born of above, you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And we'll talk about this tomorrow night. When you do that, do you know that Jesus now sees, or God the Father sees you in the same way as he sees Jesus? He sees you as being holy. And that's the only way he will see you. Because you are bought with the blood of Christ. 
Father, we thank you so much for this time we had here and what an awesome God we are having in our presence who has created us, who has allowed us to come here. And Lord Jesus, we praise you, glorify you. Lord, may your spirit just move upon people. May we, every single person listening to this, whether here in the keys or on the internet, wherever, Lord, will they just take a moment and really think and comprehend who Jesus is, who you are. You are the creator God. You made purification for sin. You are totally God. Human, yes, but totally God. Not some lesser God, not some part-time God. You are of the same total essence as God the Father. You are the great I am. And may we always hold you in great esteem and honor and glory. Amen.